Vision is More Than 2020, a podcast aimed at talking about your vision, your eyes, and how they play a role in overall visual and systemic function. Dr. Zolnicki and Lakowski, with the help of various guests, will work to help you understand more about your visual system and all the pieces to the vision puzzle. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Vision is More Than 2020. Let's talk about our weekly insight, which is playing with food with your kids to help learn letters and sounds. And it's kind of a weird weekly insight because it's not one that you would think of coming from us, but both of us, as you guys know, have toddlers and we're learning about letters all the time. So Dr. L sent me a video of Teddy the other day learning his letters with some cucumbers. And I said, oh, that's so cute. I was, I've been doing this with Daisy, but we like to use apples and whipped cream. So basically what you do is you just kind of get creative with the food, right? Kids are going to be engaged while they're eating and you make learning fun. And that's, the best way for them to, to, to learn. So like I said before, with Daisy, we were using an apple, right? Apple starts with the letter A. And then we went from drawing the letter A first with our finger in the whipped cream, which was super fun to then using the apple slice, almost like a pen. So we were working on her fine motor skills, her visual motors, visual motor, and being able to understand the connection between the letter and then the word and it it was it's been so fun to be creative with this process how is teddy doing with learning his letters with food yeah he loves it and i i love this weekly insight because i feel like there's this connotation of like don't play with your food (laughs) as something that parents are always saying but um, it's it's at a time where you're already sitting with them, you're engaged with them, um, and it makes both the learning and the eating fun when you bring this extra concept in. So Teddy's been loving it. Um, he's very imaginative when he's eating already. He likes to build me lots of trucks with his, his fruits and vegetables. So I figure why not parlay this into letters as well? So like Dr. Z said, we've been working on the letter T. So cucumbers are a great like, building block size to make letter T's. And I started just doing it for him and saying, T, what is T for? And he says, Teddy, and then led him into like him building the shape and talking about one goes side by side and the other one goes up and down to even work on those directionals too. And it's really been a great tool just to help him start to recognize letters and then start to form them on his own. So we highly recommend playing with your food. Yeah. And tune into our Instagram because you'll see the video of Teddy working on his letter T and you hear his sweet little voice and he's like, T is for Teddy and it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so cute. I have to say, I have to say too, he uh for O, he always says O is for Teddy also. So I call him O Teddy. Oh <laughs> I love that so much. Oh. Okay. Listen, toddlers are the funniest people on the earth. If you know, if you could just record all the funny things your kids do and say, it's it's amazing. So like Dr. L said, get interactive during mealtime with your kid. It's such a wonderful time to connect with them and to experience some kind of learning through through fun and through food. Uh, so now we, for our episode, we are continuing our case series and we are being joined by Dr. Joanna Carter. She grew up outside of Portland, Oregon and graduated from Gladstone High School. She received her Bachelor of Science in Biology from Linfield College and her optometry degree from Pacific University College of Optometry. While in optometry school, Dr. Carter improved her Spanish speaking skills through several mission trips to Mexico and Guatemala. 
Dr. Carter has postgraduate training in vision therapy, which improves the communication between the eyes and the brain. With therapy, her patients noted improvements such as visual clarity and comfort, ease and independence with academics, better eye-hand coordination, and improved 3D vision. Dr. Carter and her husband, Kyle, have three busy children. They are a divided household. Dr. Carter and Bethany are Oregon Ducks fans, while Kyle, Caroline, and Boston root for the Oregon State Beavers. Dr. Carter also enjoys scrapbooking and fellowship with friends. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carter. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. And for those who maybe didn't catch your first episode, which go back and listen to it, uh, just share a little bit of your background and how you became interested in optometry and your journey throughout optometry and how you landed where you are today. Ooh, I guess my journey started when I was about two and a half years old and my eyes started crossing in and uh, my parents realized that that wasn't normal. And so they took me to, I believe, an ophthalmologist who prescribed glasses, which straightened my eyes. But I remember as a kid taking my glasses off and looking in the mirror and my eyes would cross and like trying to will them to straighten. Um, So that was sort of part of me growing up. But I never wanted to be an eye doctor. I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I got accepted to vet school, but then realized oh, I don't know if this is the right path for me. So I took a couple of years off, worked in an optometry clinic, and then kind of, you know, embarked in this part of my journey. So, um, and vision therapy wasn't ever anything that I knew about. Um, and it wasn't really till I was in optometry school that I learned about vision therapy. And I worked at a clinic in my fourth year um, that was this fantastic private practice vision therapy clinic. And I got to see lives transformed just from my one day a week of being in that clinic. And so that was, that was the, the deal breaker for me. Like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, my path since I've gotten out of school has been a little non-straight. Uh, I started working in a practice and got a vision therapy practice running. But then once I was expecting my first baby, I realized I couldn't keep that up. And I wound up working at Sears Optical for like five or six years, just part-time making babies. It was low stress. It was wonderful. Um, Then once my littlest was born, I realized I was getting the itch to not work Saturdays anymore, really. Uh, Got involved with the private practice again, and then ultimately started building up the vision therapy. After a couple of years of that, realized that really vision therapy is the only thing that I want to do. And um, open my own uh, VT vision therapy only practice. So that's all we do here. Uh, we just do vision therapy and neural rehabilitation. Um, I've always said that strabismus and amblyopia has been a small part of our practice, like a sliver. And that's where patients have the two eyes that really aren't working well together and I turn or one eye that doesn't see as well as the other. But this year has been a big change in that. All of a sudden, that's like a third of our practice. So it's not a little sliver anymore. That is so wonderful. And for the optometrist listening, it's usually the demographic of patients that they run from. Yes, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of traditional optometrists don't want to deal with an eye turn, don't want to deal with double vision, don't want to deal with this decreased vision in one eye or 3D vision. They don't want to think about it. Uh, so I think that is so wonderful that you're becoming the go-to doctor in your area for kids with that 
that issue or even adults with that issue, you know, and giving the, the alternative to just going to see the ophthalmologist, um, as we've talked about in the past, right? They really look at structure and we're, we're looking at the function of the two eyes and how they coordinate. So the approach to treatment is a little bit different depending on who you, you see, uh, especially at that very first step. So now your case is really interesting because it's a young, a young kid. And by seeing you so young, versus say maybe an ophthalmologist, his, your treatment plan is probably very different than had he gone down a different path. So tell us a little bit about your case, why they came to you and all about this child. So I fully agree with you on the, how the paths can, can um, be very different depending on what treatment is given. And uh, my preference is to be the first one to see these kids that have these more significant binocular vision problems, but that was rarely the case. Like (laughs) I'm never the first one people see. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's okay. I'm happy to see people whenever it's just easier if I have a blank slate and I, I almost had a blank slate in this situation. So this little boy is three and he was referred to me by his primary care optometrist. They live on the coast. And so I'm in Oregon uh, and I'm the, they live about three and a half hours away. So that is not a small commute. Um, and that's of course each way. Uh, I have a fair number of patients that come to me from the Brookings, Southern Oregon coast area, because there's nobody around there, obviously that does vision therapy or neurorehabilitation. I also have the wonderful um, privilege of getting to know several families over there. And as you guys know, the more that you invest in, in families and people, the more likely they are to refer. So um, this, this particular family was sort of double referred by their optometrist and also because they are friends with this other family that I know. So um, he had been given glasses in the past and the glasses that he'd been given were fairly high farsighted prescription in the right eye, which was the eye that was turning inward. That was the reason for the referral. Uh, and then moderate farsighted in the left eye. And he, he got them and promptly lost them. So that's, all. like I said, it's almost a clean slate because although he'd been prescribed lenses, he really wasn't wearing them. <laughs> Typical so, case for a kid, right? <laughs> correct. Um, so, you know, obviously they were concerned about the misalignment of their eyes. And like you said, most regular eye doctors don't love seeing patients with misaligned eyes. They don't have the time for that. Just in regular primary care, you don't have the time slotted to say, oh, let's take an extra 45 minutes to dig into this problem. Um, they know. Um, and Whereas they go, oh, okay, let me figure out what to do. I'm like, yes, let me figure out what to do. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I think, I think it's helpful for the patients to be seeing a provider too, who is actually enjoying the process and wants to spend the time and has the additional education to be able to use all their tools to help the patient in the best way possible. So when I saw this little boy, um, I did a, basically as many tests as I could on a three-year-old, um, which was quite a few. Um, I always start with a depth perception testing. I want to see what the patient can do with both eyes 
together before I start breaking down the system. Um, and he had no depth perception because his eyes were not pointing at the same place at the same time. So I wasn't surprised by that, but of course I was going to measure it. Um, he had some difficulty moving the right eye outward, like with the right eye to the right, which is pretty common if the right eye wants to point inward. Uh, he could move it a little better on its own, like if I covered the left eye, but with both eyes together, the right one didn't want to be going out that way. Both eyes had pretty not great vision. And I, in, in my clinic, I use um, the Leia symbol chart when I'm checking kids. And I have also the Leia puzzle. So it's just this four piece puzzle that has the different shapes that are on the eye chart. And so even with my super shy kiddos, I can get accurate VAs as young as two, year, or two and a half to three years old, you know, before that you have to do some other testing like preferential looking or things like that. I love the Leia puzzle though, because it's interactive. And as long as they have the stamina for it, then we can get some really good information. So his vision in the right eye was 2150. Whoa, that's a big number. So that that basically means that the, the letters had to be significantly larger than the 2020, like almost 10 times larger than 2020 in order to be able to see it. Um, the left eye was better, I would measure that at 2060. So again, it had to be about three times larger than the 2020 for him to be able to appreciate it. So he had a moderate eye turn in, in, um, in the right eye, both far away and up close. Um, and then, so here's the part that is, I, I feel like is where the road takes a turn um, in terms of like my management versus typical management of this case. So this is the fun. Um, so I did a test called near retinos or retinoscopy. So it's a test where we shine a light in the eyes to get an idea of what the, what the prescription is. Mm -hmm. um, and I measured him at a plus six in both eyes, which is fairly farsighted. Um, and the typical treatment protocol for an inward eye turn when someone's super farsighted is to prescribe the maximum amount of prescription that we measure. And in, I, that wasn't even, I didn't dilate him because he just had a dilated eye exam and I didn't really feel like I needed to repeat that. Um, and he, um, and, and, and a lot of times with, with accommodative esotropia, the inward eye turn related to farsightedness, they prescribe the maximum dilated prescription. That's not what I did. Um, I did get him behind my glasses machine and figure out what, what power he liked the best, which is not something I always get to do with a three-year-old, but this guy's pretty bright. Um, and he kicked down the prescription to a 4.5. So he kicked about 25% of the prescription out. And that's pretty typical also. I find that my farsighted people like a little skin in the game. They like, they're used to working and putting, and so if you try, for someone who is always working hard to see, if you try to take away 100% of that effort, nope, they're not going to like the prescription. And just as an aside, if you ever see a kid walking around looking over the top of their glasses, I can guarantee you their glasses are too strong for them. That's a really good point. And I'm really glad you highlighted that because I think we have all of these optometry groups, right? We have ODs on Facebook, VTODs on Facebook. And one of the most common questions on the regular ODs on Facebook group is, 
I have a young kid who is very farsighted. What do I prescribe? How do I prescribe for them? And it's interesting because they want this cookbook, but really all the things that you described is how you treat them, right? We know where their max is, what their full prescription is. Okay. And then we know what they'll accept, but then what will they actually wear? Right. and it's no coincidence that this three-year-old quote unquote lost his glasses. Right. He put them somewhere because they were not comfortable. <laughs> and that's a really great learning uh, piece for those that are listening. Like you, the patient tells you how they feel and you have to listen to them. You have to hear what they're saying or observe what they're, what they're showing so that you can get the best compliance with glasses. So sorry to interrupt you, but continue on with what you ended up prescribing for him. Right. No, I, yeah, I can't agree more. And, and, and so in this case, I'm taking all that into account. I know his old glasses were around a plus four ish in the more farsighted eye. And I'm thinking, okay, he clearly rejected that. And that's, that's what he's telling me he likes the best. And so then I did near retinoscopy. So I, I want to see what are they doing when they're looking far away and what are they doing when they're looking up close? I, I feel like that near retinoscopy because they're going to be playing with toys. Like a lot of a little one's world is up close and not reading road signs. So I want to see what we're doing there. And with near ret, I measured plus six and I'm thinking that doesn't seem better. It just, you know, it just wasn't sitting right for me. So, um, I decided to trial the 4.5 because that made sense. That's what he picked on subjective refraction. My gut was telling me it's too strong, but I couldn't help it. Like, that's what I measured. I still have that in me. Like it's ingrained in my brain. Um, and, and so he put them on and he took them off. He said, I see fine. And he took them off. And I thought, okay, so if he's able to keep them on for 4.5 seconds, Maybe that's not the right prescription for him. So then I sort of dug into my inner Brenda Montecalvo and I attended one of her seminars, man, at this point, it was probably six years ago. And I remember her telling me when I have like a new high farsighted patient, the highest prescription that I give them is a plus two. And I thought, that's crazy. Like, what it goes so against everything that we've learned. And what about, what about all these different things? But I tell you, I've tried that multiple times with my patients and it is so well tolerated. And I think a, a big reason why that lower plus, even though we measured much higher, the lower plus is accepted is because it doesn't distort our space, our perception of space. The higher plus you go, the more spatial distortion you get, that difference of like where I think it is versus where it actually is. It's not as magnified, all those things. So I I had a little extra time. So I I put the plus twos in the trial frame, put them on his face and said, let's sit on the floor together. And we just did a, like a ball roll, like a a marble catch type game on the floor together. And I'm watching him. How well can he reach and grab for it? How well are his eyes tracking together? And they were tracking inward and outward together. Uh, And he had a more significant eye turn when he looked at distance. And so the fact that both eyes were diverging together some of the time with these plus twos, I was like, that's enough for me. That's great. Um, So that's what I prescribed. I said, these are 
you know, we can consider these trading wheels glasses. And I have no idea if the prescription is going to change as we go. There isn't some ceiling that I'm trying to get to. There's not. Like a lot of times what I find is that when I give the child an opportunity to do some of the work by themselves, then that maximum prescription that I find actually decreases over time. So when I'm not trying to get him to ultimately to be a plus six. I mean, if he does, okay, but he's not, that's not my goal. So they were fine. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, I just prescribed plus twos for a plus six kid. You know, it's, I've done this multiple times and it still gets me like, oh gosh, am I doing the right thing? So they came back about three months later for a follow-up. I wanted to give them plenty of time to go back to their primary optometrist at home, order the glasses and, and wear them for a little while before coming back. And they walked into my office and I happened to be up at the front when they walked in. And I tell you, are you ready? His eyes were straight. Wow. Right. I was like, oh, what? Are you kidding me? I, it, it doesn't get old. Um, <laughs> now, okay. To be fair, when I started testing him, it, the, uh, the alignment or position of the eyes did break down pretty quickly. So it wasn't like he's got this rock solid. Uh, so he still had a variable eye turn at distance and an occasional eye turn at near, but whoa. And his, his mom was like, this is amazing. Like he's wearing his glasses and we're not having to fight with him and his eyes look so much better. So we're very excited about that. Um, I still started out by measuring his depth perception and he didn't have any. So that's not all better yet, um, which, I mean, it would have been cool, but not like expected. That's fine. Uh, we're going to take some time for that. Uh, his best vision was 2050 in the right eye and 2040 in the left. So that's a pretty significant improvement over where he was before. A three-time improvement in the right eye and about 50% improvement in the left. And I just want to oh. highlight with that, um, with that improvement in acuity, this now this is so much closer, right? 2050 and 2040 are one line apart. Previously, they were like six, seven lines apart. Right. And for the brain, that's really hard to put together, right? Because the right eye sees an image, the left eye sees an image, and then the brain wants to put it together. Prior to any intervention, right? The right eye was seeing so blurry and the left eye was seeing fairly clear, but the brain couldn't put those two together. So that right eye said, see ya, I'm jumping ship, I'm turning in. But now with this, even just the plus twos, now they're so much closer together. So I think that's the key as to why that, that even though it was fragile, the two eyes were starting to work together. And that's incredible, which is like so, so exciting. Correct. Yes. It gives a much better opportunity. And also, if you think about the previous prescription, there was the right eye prescription was about double of what the left eye was in those first glasses that were immediately lost. And talking about how far-sighted glasses magnify the image, if one lens is double the power of the other lens, then the image size is going to be quite a bit bigger. So we've got a blurrier, bigger image in one side, and then a clearer, smaller image that's more real life looking in the other. Again, what is what's the best choice here? Well, obviously lose your glasses, but the other choice is to just continue ignoring that right eye because the input that you're getting isn't, isn't compatible with the other eye. So another reason why it was a, why my starting point was an equal prescription in both eyes, because I wanted the brain to have those equal 
as close to equal inputs as possible. Near retinoscopy was still plus six. So he's still like not super engaged up close. Um, but I did find that if I gave him just a, an extra plus one over his glasses, then that improved the alignment up close by uh, over 50%. Uh, so that is ultimately what we did at this last appointment that I saw him as I changed his prescription to a bifocal, which is a plus one ad. Um, and, and I didn't want to go higher than that because again, our far-sighted people like to have skin in the game. So I do have uh, a local um, pediatric ophthalmologist who I do a lot of work with now. Um, it was super cool. We were actually just sharing Halloween pictures of our families together the other day. Uh, and it's been a long time coming. Like we've, we've both been sort of the pediatric specialists, eye specialists for a while, and we both take very different approaches. And so it's taken some time for us to figure out how to work together um, in, in a way that makes sense for the patients, because it can be confusing if one doctor is recommending one thing and then another doctor is recommending something that seems totally different. Um, but we do, we share a lot of patients together now. She sends people to me, I send people to her. It's, it, it's a, a very good relationship, but she loves to prescribe high ads, like two plus 2.5s on kids. And, uh, and so that's something that I'm like, okay, we're changing that. Uh, because I just, I don't think kids don't know how to accommodate. And although it may straighten the eyes, I don't think that is always the best option for the patient. So I want, I want to see how they're interacting with things. Um, right. I think so. that's a really important point that you're making. And I, I love that you're able to work so collaboratively in your community with other specialists that are seeing these same pediatric patients. And, I think that by, you know, really very simply sitting back and thoughtfully prescribing for this kid, you really did the best thing you could by him. And I think that's a really important point to make is really take that time to think about your prescriptions and don't just look at the numbers on the page and don't just look at what happens to the eye alignment, but think about exactly what you're saying. Like think about their focusing system and what they're they're doing through the glasses prescription with their focusing system. Um, and that can really be life-changing for a kid because when you do have those high prescriptions, sometimes if you do prescribe that and the kid manages to keep it on their face, sometimes you can even lock them into that prescription as well. And it's really, really hard to take it away. So it, you know, this little boy that you saw, if he ended up in a different chair, he may have ended up in something in almost that plus six. And if he somehow managed to keep it on his face, he may have been locked in at a, pl a plus six moving forward in his life, which like you said, there's a lot of optical side effects from those lenses um, and, and other things that could have affected his visual system by being prescribed such a high prescription. So I really love this conversation that we're having and so thoughtfully prescribing and looking at your patient as a whole and what that prescription is doing, not just the numbers that you get and that you have to prescribe that. <laughs> right. Um, so I know that this kid lived very, very far from you. So I'm sure that's kind of impacting your your follow-up and your, your treatment plan, but what are some things that you see on the horizon for this kid as he comes back to you? And what are some other things that you maybe want to incorporate into his treatment plan? Right. So um, it is sort of a case, you know, a case-by-case case situation. Like, okay, I wasn't expecting to see that much change in that first visit. So man, I can't wait to see what happens in the next visit. Um, you know, if assuming he comes back and we still have an intermittent eye turn, uh, binasal occlusion would be probably my next 
add on, I I've sort of I'm, I'm doing this kind of a gentle one thing at a time just to see what what we have. So that may be something that we add just to give the brain more feedback of when the eye is starting to pull in, go whoop, oh, up, oh, I need to move outside of there. Uh, so that's certainly something we could do at um, at this age. Um, and, and we do syntonics, optometric uh, phototherapy at my office, um, and we haven't we haven't started any syntonic treatment with him yet. Um, so that would be an easy thing to add on as well. Um, if I, especially if we we continue to see the lack of stereo, then that's something that I would be inclined to add on just to help his brain uh, learn to use the eyes better. Uh, vision therapy is certainly an option as well. Um, typically with our young ones like this and or if they live far away, they may just come in like once every other week or once possibly once a month. Um, a lot of times, well, now since COVID, we now offer telehealth. That would be a terrible option for a three-year-old. Um, but when for our patients that do live far away that are older, uh, that's been a great option. So then we just alternate weeks, like one week you're in office, next week you're home, so that they're not having to do that drive as frequently. Yeah, I love that you highlighted that. Telehealth and virtual vision therapy is a great resource, but it's not for everybody or for every case. You know, even any complicated strabismus patient, I will always say, <laughs> I think we should make the effort to get in office just because there's so many factors that we can't control when we're doing things virtually where we can do so much more in office with that patient. So I, I love that you highlighted that. But for this case, we it was not, like I said, not a typical case that you see all the time, but what was your, your biggest lesson from the patient and your takeaway from this case? We you know we're, uh, patients are always teaching us, uh, especially esotropes. I always say that once I think I have esotropia figured out, a new patient comes in and it throws me off <laughs> and mm -hmm. I was really relearning of how esotropes work because they're a different breed. Um, so what was your biggest lesson and takeaway from this case? Um, I think my biggest takeaway was that you never know what a patient is going to do with a little bit of help. And, and I really feel like that's all I was doing in this case. I was just offering him a little bit of assistance, like, Hey, let's see what happens with this. And, and, and I really saw that he did run with it. Um, I realize now that I misspoke earlier when I said that he came back for that follow-up in his near retinoscopy, where I checked to see what his eyes were doing up close. I said that was still plus six. I was wrong. I just looked at my notes. Uh, so it was plus six before, but actually at this visit, it had changed to a plus three. So it had dropped in half. And that's how I decided to do the plus one ad. So I apologize for my misspeaking, but that tells you something. Like the, for me, that was a big aha moment too. Before he was kind of lost in space, didn't know really where to focus, how to focus. Then I gave him a little bit of help and he came back and all of a sudden he was pretty close when he was looking up close through his glasses to where he needed to be. And he just needed a little more help to really be able to um, make sense of what he was seeing. So yeah, at his next visit, who knows what I'm going to see. My expectation is I'm going to see that the that what he's doing up close is going to be spot on with the bifocals. Um, and in terms of alignment, I don't know, but um, hopefully continued improvement there. 
<clears throat> wonderful. I think that this was a, a really wonderful case to highlight. And I love your treatment approach and how thoughtful you were with your patient. And I'm excited for him to come back and see you and see the visual gains that he's making. Um, so thank you so much for coming on this morning. And for everyone listening, where can they find and follow you? So um, I am on my office is on Facebook and Instagram, Insight Vision Therapy, um, and our website, insightvisiontherapy.com. Wonderful. So I will link that. Um, and as always, um, for our listeners, if they want to connect virtually with you, they totally can, right? You do offer, I, I think I've seen that you've, you've offer consultations virtually. So I will link all that information, but thank you so much again, Dr. Carter, for joining us. This was a great, great, great case. And you'll have to update us with how he is doing. We're planning on doing, continuing the case series for a while. So you'll have to pop back on to tell us how he is doing because I'm thoroughly interested in his treatment. Well, that sounds great. And I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Bob Sianet because I was taking what I learned from his best binocular prescription um, lecturing while taking, while treating this patient. Um, I was also checking not just vision, not just alignment, but I was also looking at, um, the worth four dot test, which looks at how well is the brain paying attention to both eyes that also changed significantly at that second visit. So, um, and I've been using that best binocular prescription method with many of my patients. And perhaps that's why we've had this huge boom in our strabismus and amblyopia patients. But I even saw a, a grown up yesterday uh, who's I think in his 20, like late twenties. And he told me, this was my, my third visit with him. Uh, and he said, I've never seen this well. He has strabismus and amblyopia. Well, he doesn't have strabismus anymore. Now he just has mild amblyopia. Uh, but he said, every prescription's never worked for me. This is the first one that actually gets my brain to use both eyes together. And, and that's what you, the, I think this is for me, that was the biggest takeaway point was looking at how to get the two eyes to work best together and being thoughtful about prescribing and getting to that point. So for all the optometrists listening, I hope you take that into account that you have to look at the whole person, look at the two eyes together and what is going to work best and feel best for the patient. Right. Um, so I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the week and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Join our private Facebook group, Vision is More Than 2020, and follow us on Instagram. For additional content, check out our practice, Twin Forks Optometry, on both Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe, download, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Tune in next week to learn more about your vision.